0: If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the back of chapter 1 in Philippians. We're continuing our study together, Uh, choosing joy, choosing joy in Jesus. Uh, This week's message is called The Life, uh, A Life Worthy of the Gospel, A Life Worthy of the Gospel, and I tell this story, or parts of this story, as often as I can, because it was one of the greatest days of my life, Uh, 2002, uh, state champions, Cook Inlet Academy, It was, I will tell you, there were many reasons why that was the best day of my life. And there was one moment that stood out above the rest of the moments, and it wasn't beating our rival Nanilchik Wolverines in double overtime in the state championships, although that felt great. It wasn't that moment, (laughs) we've got a Wolverine in the house. Yeah. Sucker. Um, we It wasn't this, this, the, the, the time jumping in my coach's arm and screaming at the top of my lungs or falling over with Jacob and our team in a, in a, in a joyous heap. It wasn't the cutting down of the nets, and it wasn't just the universal fame and acclaim that came with winning a small school's basketball championship in Alaska, although that was a great perk. The, the sweetest moment that stood out above the rest was later that night, and it was, it was Coach Keener and his wife, Marilyn, and I think it was Calder and Luke and I. I don't think that Jacob was there. Um, probably went to bed. He was, he, anyway, um, we, we sat in this little nook in one of the hotel rooms, and we just sat there and told stories for hours, talking about that day that we had won the championship, talking about the season, and, and just the, the things that we had experienced together together, And some of those things that we talked about were hard things in the moment. I mean, I had incredible back pain my senior year where I couldn't even walk after playing some of those basketball games. If it wasn't for rolfing, um, I I don't know that I would have been able to play that season. Uh, I got my pinky torn out of its socket. I still have a freak pinky. I don't know if you can see it from here, but, you know, uh, parental advisory. Uh we went through a big losing streak when Calder, our best player on our team, decided to ditch us to go on a family vacation to Hawaii. And we went through this losing streak, and we thought, this might be it. Like, this, my senior year, this might all be for naught. We, we might be knocked out of contention. Um, and then one of the biggest things, my, my friend, I, I was the only senior that year. It should have been another one there with me, Stephen. My friend Stephen, his older brother Brian, um, came down, he had cancer, and they had to move out of state for treatments. And a few months before the season started, um, we, uh, Brian passed away at the age of 21 Had played with him my freshman year And we actually you can kind of see it There's a little number 31, a black patch on the shoulder There that I'm right next to my armpit hair um, That was An uh, in, in, in honor and memory of Brian and, But when we talked about Those tragedies, we talked about Those trials, we talked about those Difficulties We talked about how each one of those Had made us who we were And in the end they were all worth it On that sweet day, sharing in both the victories and in the sufferings, all that hard work had paid off for that moment. Not just the championship, but what we had done together and the relationships that we share to this day. Just called coach this last week. Um, But I want us to imagine a similar but infinitely sweeter scene in heaven. There's this, there's this, there's this moment that's going to come where, where we, it's, it's the new heaven, uh, the new heavens are actually going to be back here on earth, so we're actually, this is going to be heaven on earth, some of you are like, well, I'm not going to be here in Silbatna, right, new heavens, I'm going to be in Hawaii or Cancun, or, but I think, I think Sulbatna might be tropical in the new heavens, we'll see, um, But but there's going to be this this time of sharing and reminiscing and telling stories together. And there's this moment in Revelation that's so beautiful. Uh, John says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And he says, They held harps, those who had been victorious. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the lamb, and this is the song that they sing, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. And I wonder, like when we sing those songs of those saints that have endured, that are victorious, what what will those songs be? What will those deeds be that we sing about? And and I don't think it's going to be songs of how much money we made while we were on here on earth. I don't think they're going to be songs of how early we got to retire, and we just got to have fun. I don't think it's going to be all the vacations that we had, all the possessions that we amassed, I think these songs are going to be songs of God's faithfulness, his deeds in us as we walk this world, enduring suffering, spreading his fame through his power for his glory. And I think we're going to to be telling stories of glory, but also telling stories of suffering. And I think it's going to be an upside down world where the heroes are not the generals of war, they're, they're not these, these people that we would normally think of the celebrities and presidents. And I think they're going to be stories of the missionaries. I think they're going to be stories of the outcast, the lonely, and the loser that, that spread the good news of Jesus Christ. The least of these will become first. And I think that we're going to tell stories, both victorious stories and stories of suffering. But on that day, all of the sacrifice... All of the suffering is going to be so worth it. It's going to be so worth it. And I think the only moments that we're going to regret when we're telling those stories and singing those songs are the moments that we spent on self and not others for the sake of the gospel. Paul makes a very simple point, but a very profound point in in the end of this chapter. And this is the central point of today's message, because I think it's the central point of what Paul's trying to say. It's to live, live a life, this is the mandate, live a life worthy of the gospel. Live a life worthy of the gospel. And I think this boils down what we're about as believers, and there's, there's two simple things we want to look at. We want to say, what does that mean? Paul's going to tell us, what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel, and how do we do that? How do we do that? And that's where we're going this morning. Um, He says here in verse 27, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to conduct ourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, I'll tell you what I don't think it means. I don't think it means that we are worthy of the gospel of Christ. I don't believe any of us are worthy of of, of Jesus are earned, deserve what He's given us. By, by nature, by the definition of the word grace, He has given us something that we do not deserve. Now, I think it means that Jesus is of infinite worth. The, the gospel, what he's done for us is of infinite value. And Paul's call here is to live a life that shows exactly how much Jesus is worth to us. In other words, Paul is saying, don't cheapen the gospel. Don't treat what is of infinite worth as though it's worth nothing. Live in a way that shows that it is the most worthy thing in our lives so if we're going to do that, if we're going to live in a, in a, in a, in a lifestyle that, that shows how worthy the gospel of Christ is, we've well, we got to ask the question, what's the gospel of Christ? what is it? If we're going to live worthy of it, we've got to know what it is. The gospel simply means good news. So you hear good news. Good news, you know, I got work off this week. That's just, that's the gospel of your work schedule, okay? It's just the good news. That's all that the word gospel means. So what is the good news? There's a specific good news that Paul's referring to. 1 Corinthians 15 probably gives the most succinct version of the gospel um, that I know of in scripture. Paul says this, now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel of the good news that I preached to you, and then he says what it is in verse 3, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and he goes to say he appeared to many people to prove that he had indeed risen. So if you want to put the gospel down in, in, the, in the smallest nutshell possible, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again. So the question is, why is that story about something that somebody did 2,000 years ago, why is that of infinite value and worth to me today? Well, we know the problem, right? That you and I sinned. Because of our sin, we have been separated from God and separated from Jesus, the person of God. We no longer have access to them, to worship them, to know them, to walk with them. And therefore, I believe what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of what Christ did so we could gain Christ. And I specifically word it that way. The gospel is the good news of what God did so that, what Christ did so that we could gain Christ. And that's what Paul says in chapter three. He goes, I've lost all things, I consider them all garbage that I may gain Christ. What Paul cared about, we said last week, his magnificent obsession, what drove him, was was the person of Jesus. And he says the good news is what was once lost from us, we now have again. The good news is God is right. It's not what we've been saved from. It's what we've been saved to. And I want to say this, and this might sound heretical when I first say it, but we'll, we'll see where it goes. If we say that the reason that I value the gospel is because I don't have to go to hell, I believe that's wrong. I believe that's sinful. And I actually believe it's idolatry in a very subtle way. If I say the reason the gospel is valuable to me is because I don't have to go to hell, I believe that's idolatry. And here's why. I'll explain my reasoning. Idolatry, and I love this definition, is making a good thing the ultimate thing. Making a good thing the ultimate thing. So our families are a good thing. They're given to us by God. But if we make our family a good thing, the ultimate thing, then it's idolatry. Because we've made something that's not God, God. And we put it ahead of the ultimate thing, who is God. And so it's a good thing that we don't have to go to hell anymore. But that's not the ultimate thing. And if if our own well-being is what we make ultimate, then we've made a good thing The ultimate thing. I think it's idolatry to say that the gospel is valuable for any other reason than that the gospel gives me Jesus. That's the good news. So, if I wanted to say this in 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 a a sentence, I think I made a grammatical error here that I forgot to change. To walk worthy of the gospel of Jesus, to live in a way that shows Jesus is worth more to us than anything anything. That Jesus and what he's done for us, who he is for us, and to make much of him. Remember, our end, the chief end of man, is to glorify God. And the best way we do that is to be satisfied with Jesus. Not a get out of hell free card, but that we've been given Jesus. It's not what we've been saved from. It's what we've been saved to. And what we've been saved to is a personal, intimate, eternal relationship with the king of kings. That's the good news. We don't get married... Just so that we're not single anymore, right? So out here <laughs> we get married to be with that person. We didn't get saved just so that we don't aren't in hell anymore. Hell is 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 life apart from Jesus. Heaven is life in his presence. So that's what living, what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, is to live a life that shows that Jesus is worth more to us than anything. So how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, there's three markers here that I want us to look at. I want to see if you can detect these markers as we walk through this passage. He says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Now here's what stands out to me as he kind of, kind of fleshes out what this life lived worthy of the gospel looks like. I see him saying we need to stand firm in the one spirit as, as one, okay, there's some indicators there, striving together for the faith of the gospel and without being frightened by those who oppose you. So if I could kind of boil that down into a simple little sentence, I would say that the life worthy of the gospel is a unified, fearless fight for the faith. It's a unified, fearless fight for the faith. Let's break it down. Fight for the faith. Um, the word he uses here for striving together is actually one Greek word uh, with two kind of compound words put together. The word soon uh, means together, with, with one another. Now, athleo, many Greek scholars in the building, what does that look like in English? Huh? Athlete, yeah, athletics. Very good. I knew we had some smarty pants in here. Athlete, athletics. Okay, so, so what he's saying, and other, and other translations would say wrestling, contending, f- the New Living says fighting. That's why I chose fight for the faith. We are, we are contending, fighting, wrestling, striving t- together like athletes. And what is it that we're fighting for? What is the goal? What is, you know, in the basketball game, we're trying to win the game, win the championship. What is a win Uh, what is the end game of us as Christian athletes? Well, he says, striving together as one for what? The faith of the gospel. Our mission, what we're working for as a team, is to spread the good news of Jesus to the corners of the world. To present everyone complete in Christ. That's what our church's mission statement is. It's all about him. During our 2002 season, we didn't win a championship because we sat around and ate donuts and played video games all day. Now, we were teenagers, so we did that, but that's not all that we did. We also went to practice day in and day out. We watched game film. We worked together on and off the court. We put in the work. We ran the lines. I hated running lines, but I knew that I would be completely out of shape and unable to get back on defense if I didn't run lines in practice. We had to be disciplined. We had to train. We had to get after it. That championship did not present itself without work. So what does that mean applied to fighting for the faith of the gospel? It means that each of us is an athlete. Next door, we have little two and three-year-old athletes. And they're, we're making them, they're bench pressing. and you don't even know what they're doing over there. It's, it's, it's probably illegal. Despite my appearances, I'm a 32-year-old athlete for Jesus, right? Pastor Chuck is a 35-year-old athlete, right? It's amazing. And everything that we should be doing should be focusing on training for, working toward the goal of spreading the fame of Jesus in our homes, in our communities, and among the nations there's this amazing passage in Acts, um, the, the high priest is talking, he is so sick and tired of the apostles and all their followers, and he goes, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, in the name of Jesus, he said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood, of, of killing Jesus. And I I love this. He goes, we we quit talking about Jesus. But he says, you filled this city with his teaching. And I would love for our, what's our mayor's name? What's his name? Her name? Of Silbatna? Pete, What? Pete Spray? I should know that. Okay, Pete Spray, yeah, of course. Um, imagine if Pete goes, I am sick of you guys at Peninsula Grace. I'm sick. Of, we, It's an election season, y'all keep it down, right? And yet he goes, You are filling Soldatna and Kenai with the teaching of this man Jesus. And it's everywhere. It's down at the Diamond M Ranch. The RV people are complaining because all they talk about down there is Jesus. We're filling the hospitals up on the slope, in our homes, in the coffee shops, everywhere. You guys are like Christian locusts, okay? You just won't stop talking about Jesus. But that means we have to train, we have to put in the work, we have to be in the Word, we have to be encouraging each other on a daily basis. And keep Jesus as our vision. And it's hard because this world throws a lot of distractions our way to keep us off the practice floor and to keep us from keeping our eye on the prize. So we fight for the faith. When we fight for the faith together, we are unified. He says, we stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So we, we strive, we practice, we play, not as one, okay? There is no I in Jesus, okay? Teamwork wins victories. If we're going to do this thing, we're going to do it as one, together. And each team member must know their role and how they fit in to the greater good. You know, on our team, one of the unique things about that that senior year, that basketball team, was we were very balanced. Um, any given night, anybody could lead uh, the team in scoring. And yet, Calder, that guy that abandoned us for Hawaii. He was by far our best scorer, and most nights he led our team in scoring. Now, that didn't make the rest of us mad, and, and, and Collard didn't act like a prima donna as though he was some great thing. That was just his role, and for some of us, like the less athletic types, like Jacob and I, we did the dirty work. We got the rebounds, we worked underneath, we gave elbows when the ref wasn't looking, <laughs> for Jesus. Um, and and we, we would do this, but it took all kinds, okay? Like, if we weren't getting the rebounds, if, if, if Luke wasn't handling the ball... Okay, if Brian, well, we're not sure what Brian did, but everybody has a part. If we weren't all doing our part, then Calder's not scoring baskets and we're not winning basketball games. JB Lightfoot uses this term, striving together. He, He says striving in concert. Have you ever been to a really, really bad concert before? I have, um, at K Beach Elementary when I was student teaching there. Um, now, this wasn't Guy's group. It was the younger group. They had just, they'd been playing their instruments for, like, five minutes, and they did this Christmas concert, and it was, it was, it was terrible. Um, they, they, they were playing hot cross buns, right? It was like a hot cross mess, is what it was. They, uh, have you ever heard that? You've probably heard it, the, the, it's, like, one of the simplest, it's, like, it's always that one like clarinet that's like whoa dude and you know they go throughout the song and it's just like stop this is awful but have you ever been to an orchestra uh, or to a concert where there's an orchestra filled with professionals and they all know their role and they play their instrument to perfection but the beautiful thing is not like the clarinet or the trumpet it's the sound that they can make together And the trumpet's not going, well, I'm going to try to play the clarinet tonight. And the drum's going, well, I really want to play the, you know, Tickle the Ivories this evening. They know their instrument, and they play their instrument, and it makes one beautiful sound. So how will you, how will I specifically play our instrument, play our role on the team for the sake of the gospel? And maybe for you, you're a card writer, you know, I think of people like Francie and Leanne and just the amazing ministry they have at our church, just encouraging people through cards. Do that to the best of your ability for the sake of the team. I mean, maybe you're a letter writer. I remember when, I, when Larry and Sherry were first here, Pastor Larry and his wife Sherry, Sherry wrote me this beautiful letter that was so encouraging. There's times when it's a rough week. I will whip that letter out of the drawer and read it, and God uses it to encourage me. Light, write letters to the best of your abilities. Maybe, maybe it's hospitality for you. Like my mom is incredible at, at hospitality. She brings the youth workers in once a month into her house and just feeds them. Okay, she feeds me dinner all the time, which is a, a perk of her being my mom. Uh, but just incredible, uh, desire to 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 bring people in and to take care of them. Or you know, Mary Jean, try getting through the door without a hug from Mary Jean. Good luck, right? And and you want to talk about a cook? My goodness, amazing, amazing, and and but wants to share that for the good of others and for the sake of Jesus. Maybe it's for you. You'd you like to go, and, and God calls you into the prisons and into the hospitals, okay? Al Kidder is like our Michael Jordan of that, right? He is always, has a, such a heart for inmates and for those who are sick and infirmed. And he says, you've done that for them. You've, you've done it for the least of these. You've done it for me. Maybe you're a prayer warrior, okay? Maggie Peterson, I don't know of, of more of a prayer warrior in our church spending hours on the phone talking with people, listening to people, breaking hearts with people, and then putting that into beautiful prayer chain emails for our body, getting down on our knees and praying for those that we love. Every single role is is different, but is necessary. And some might say, well, there there are greater roles than others. Like, you know, like the preaching. Well, that's the most important role. Exactly right. Um, But no. We might say, well, some are more important than others, but, but that's not true at all, and if everybody's not doing their part using their role, Michael Jordan once said, he was asked, he's one of the greatest scorers of all time, best player in NBA history, and he was asked for the key to success, and he goes, scoring sells tickets, like people want to come to the games because of the scoring, but he said, you know what wins championships? The rebounds the rebounds are the dirty work. Remember, that's what me and Jacob could do. We didn't have athletic bone in our bodies. It was about effort and hustle. And he goes, if there aren't people getting rebounds for possessions, then I can't score. So to to, to play in our concert, to have the orchestra sound as full as it's supposed to sound, and for our team to be as successful as it can be, it takes every single instrument, every single role on the team as an athlete training and using our gifts for the sake of the body and for the magnification of Jesus. Thanks, Rana. And then the last one, the last that was fearless. Fearless, without being frightened in any way by those who appear, oppose you. Now, what does um, the word fearless imply? It implies that there's something to be afraid of, right? Like you don't like fearlessly sit in a chair, right? Or like pet that puppy without courage you know take a nap you know (laughs) suffering for jesus no like the fear being fearless implies there's something to be afraid of and this is what he says here without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you so there are those who are opposing and he says don't be frightened this word this greek word was like when a horse rears back and freaks out and starts running in the opposite direction he says when opposition comes your way don't freak out don't run away stand firm Now, this meant something to these people at the time. Most people think that this letter was written around 63 A.D. Um, That's probably the latest that the letter would have been written. And if that's true, just one year later, 64 A.D., things are about to go bananas. Nero loses his mind. He sets fire to his own city in Rome. And when it kind of comes back and people are pointing the finger at Nero, he goes, well, it wasn't me. Well, who was it? Uh, It was the Christians. Everybody hates the Christians. They make for easy scapegoats. And Tacitus, one of the uh, few eyewitnesses of the time who wrote about this, this is what he has to say. It says, consequently, to get rid of the report, the report that he had ordered the fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. So he blame shifts onto the Christians, because everybody hates the Christians, and he says, accordingly, an arrest was made of all who confessed Christ. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths, covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to the crosses, or were doomed to the flames. And there's no doubt that there were some There were some who were reading this letter who would face this very persecution. And Paul says, don't run away. Don't be afraid. That means something when you have something to fear. And maybe there are those in this room, uh, maybe we aren't on the cusp of facing that kind of opposition But I'm here to tell you, first of all, that there are brothers and sisters around the world today who are facing that uh, opposition. What do we just sing about the praises of the hundred wells and the money we've raised? Those areas, we're we're working with a group called the Persecution Project. And there are brothers and sisters around the world. And you read the paper, it is everywhere. And even for those of us, first of all, we can very easily, and it seems like we might be heading that direction as a country, But, if nothing else, the opposition is real. Because the battle's not against flesh and blood. The battle, it's a spiritual battle of truth versus lies. And we fight that battle within our own flesh, our sinful flesh. We fight it with the world. Satan is prowling. He's trying to devour us. And in 2 Timothy, Paul says, if if you want to live a godly life, if you want to really live for him, you're going to be persecuted. And so if we're not facing any kind of backlash, any kind of opposition... It might be because we're not preaching the gospel. And I guarantee you, the more that we live in a life that's according, that's worthy of the gospel, in both our action and in our speech, we will face opposition. And there's, there's Nero. Warren Wearsby said, the Christian life's not a playground, it's a battlefield. It's not a playground. This isn't just for us to have fun and God give us good things uh, because we pray to him. It's a battlefield, it's a war. And in a war, there's suffering. There's real, real suffering. That's what he says next, and this is kind of bizarre at first. He says, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Paul says that suffering for Jesus is actually God's gift for you. The word granted here, it's the same word that we get for grace. It means a gift. It means favored. So I get, I mean, I'm totally cool with believing in Jesus as being a part of his gift. But it's a lot harder to stomach that our suffering can be a gift from him. Like, that seems, I mean, I remember Christmas morning, uh, you, as a kid, even now, uh, you, get, you might get a gift and it's like that rectangle box and you're like, uh-oh, and it comes closer and It's light clothes, right? And sure enough, it's a sweater, a pair of underwear, and you're like, no, I just wanted more toys. And it was like the worst Christmas gift ever. Like, God, really? You're giving us suffering? This is your gift? Did you keep the receipt? Because I don't want it. I I'd don't I'd take a lump of coal over suffering as a gift from you. It seems like a terrible gift. But, but suffering, first of all, suffering is not accidental. We, we do not suffer on accident. It does not fall outside of the scope of God's sovereignty in our lives. And sometimes we make foolish decisions and there are ramifications for them. But suffering in general is not a form of God's divine punishment. It is a sign, Paul says, the written word says, of his favor. Some of you are saying, well, he must really favor me because I have gone through it and back. But notice here he says suffering for Jesus. Now I think this can take its form like when the Christians were being killed by other people but I believe suffering of any kind if done in a manner if done in a manner that is responded to in a Christ magnifying way clinging to Jesus through it, any kind of suffering can be for him. Any kind. I don't care if you're facing cancer. The loss of a loved one, the darkest of nights, any suffering done while clinging to him can be for him. So I I can see how suffering is the right thing to do. I mean, I'm sorry, enduring suffering. I can see how that would be just kind of the the right thing, the noble thing uh, to, to endure it. But how is this God's gift for me? Let's back up to verse 28. He says, this is a sign to them. The sign being, back in 27, fearlessly Standing against those who oppose you when we fearlessly stand against those who oppose us This was a sign to them to those that oppose us that they will be destroyed But that you will be saved and that by god What he's saying is that as we face opposition Fearlessly that as we together in concert striving with one another as we courageously Cling to our jesus to believe what god says in his word for us is true it's a sign, we are holding up a sign to the world that we win and they lose. You know, when our team battled in that season through Brian's death, through injuries, through a losing streak, through it all, when we came out on the other side, man, that gave us courage. So, you know, we've got something here. If we, if we braved those storms, there's nothing that can stop us. And you know what? The, the other team saw that too that nothing seems to be able to slow them down. They start getting afraid, realizing they don't have a chance, and we start gaining courage. I think one of the greatest evidences that Jesus rose from the dead was the fearless fight for the faith of his disciples. You probably know, all 12, Judas Iscariot got switched out for Matthias after he died. All 12, but one, died for their Savior were so thoroughly convinced that he had risen, They had seen him firsthand rise from the grave and ascend to heaven that they gave their lives for him fearlessly. The only one who didn't was the Apostle John, and he was boiled in oil alive. God miraculously saved him, and he was exiled on the island of Patmos. So he didn't exactly get a free pass either. And there's this one incredible story. James, I was reading this this week, uh, the Apostle James, he was going to be beheaded. And his executioner saw his courage, saw his unwavering belief, and the executioner himself said, I believe in what this man is saying and the Jesus that he's standing for, and the executioner was executed alongside of him. That's the power of God. So when we defeat suffering in our lives, when God defeats it through us, through an unwavering, unwavering faith grip, when we share our faith with others fearlessly, when we refuse to turn in the darkest of nights, in the most painful of trials, and to believe that he is good, even when we have a million why questions that he is not answering, it's a giant billboard to the enemy that we win and that they lose. And that what we believe in is true. That we have a hope. This is the beautiful way that, that Paul pieces all this together in Romans 5. It's it's hope. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. So how is there rejoicing in the face of trials? In the faces of the problems and the suffering in our lives? And he tells us, for we know that they help us develop endurance. So he says, these trials, they develop endurance in us. God is instilling in us a faith grip on him through those trials and this is where he goes that endurance it develops strength of character it changes who we are fundamentally as we become like jesus and that strengthens our confident hope of salvation that what we hope for that one day all this madness all this sin all this temptation will be made right under the person and authority of jesus And he says, this hope will not lead us to disappointment. Why? For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. We all so desperately need that hope. When it gets real and the night gets dark, we have to know that our Savior lives. We have to know that we are saved, that we are His, that there is hope. And He says His gift to you to be able to have this hope comes through character, which comes from endurance, which comes from His gift, the suffering. So here's where I want to close. I want to take us back to that sweet scene that we're going to have one day in heaven, the new heavens here on earth. And we're going to be strolling those streets of gold with Jesus his disciples, James, and his executioner. We're going to see those who have gone before us that we miss so dearly. We're going to see saints throughout history, and those of us that are in this room will be reunited. And we'll walk through the Garden of Eden. We'll probably be plucking non-processed sugary fruits. We'll be able to eat gluten without ramification. Or maybe gluten won't be there, I don't know. Um, But just like my basketball team. That night of our championship, we're going to reminisce about the wonderful deeds that God has done through us, and we'll share about times of great victory, we will share about times of great suffering, but in the end, the only thing that we'll regret is when we fearfully ran and chose the things of earth there's this cool passage and in, in another cool passage in Revelation uh, where Jesus is talking to the church at Smyrna. Remember the seven churches that he gives warnings to, kind of says what's coming down their path. He says, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. We're about to go, this, it's about to go down. And he goes, the devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. He goes, look, look 10 days is a long time to be in prison, to be tortured, to be abused. But he goes, it will all be worth it that day when when I place that crown on your head and you see me face to face, then you're going to see exactly why that 10 days of suffering was all worth it. And I don't know what some of you guys are going through right now, and I don't pretend to know. And it might seem like it is never going to end. And there are no answers for our questions. But the one thing I know of is what he writes in his word. And he says this in Romans 8. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. If you tried to weigh a grain of sand with all of the water, all of the oceans in the world, you couldn't even use the same scales. It wouldn't even apply. He goes, it, your suffering is great, and he's not making su- light of what our suffering is. He's our sympathetic high priest. He's walked through everything th- that we have walked through. But he goes, to compare this suffering, this temporary, vapor-like suffering, with the eternal weight of glory that's to come, he goes, you can't even compare them. They're not even in the same stratosphere. So athletes, let's live a life that's worthy of the gospel. Let's live a life that shows that Jesus is the most worthy, valuable thing to us. And let's fight together for the faith of the gospel, fearlessly. Each of us doing our part. Don't compare yourself with what everybody else is doing. Are you doing your part? Are you faithful to what God has called you to? For the good of the orchestra, for that sound, for the sake of the team, to show this world that we win and they lose, Jesus will be victorious. And on that day, all of the suffering everything we've gone through for his sake will be worth it. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy to not be able to see the forest for the trees. And our suffering is real. The things that you take us through uh, to teach us, to be an example to others, to comfort as we've been comforted. Uh, You're using all of these things in ways that we don't understand. And I pray that we wouldn't give each other pat answers, but that we would stand with each other that's what Paul was saying. Paul Paul walked the same road that these believers had walked. He was writing this from prison as he's been beaten and tortured and will be killed. And Father, as our sympathetic high priest, we pray that Jesus would come alongside us, comfort us in the midst of these trials and sufferings, lift up our eyes so that we could be heavenly minded and remember and believe that Jesus has won. He's defeated death and sin. We know how all this ends, and one day when we stand with him and we receive that crown of life for enduring the suffering, we will understand that it's all worth it, and we'll sing the songs of what Jesus has done and how worthy the Lamb is. And it's in his name that we pray now and we sing for eternity. Amen.